This week on Thinking Biblically, we're going to be looking at a biblical perspective on the environment, and I was kind of surprised about where some of the discussion went, and maybe you will be too. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. I'm Alan Gilman, and Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to examining how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. And before I introduce this week's guest, uh, I want to remind everyone to subscribe and to share and comment, and I'll give you my email address that you can uh, send me any questions or comments you might have that way. I look forward to Uh, engaging with you. Also, feel free if you have any suggestions as to topics or guests, I'd be very happy. I'd be very happy to hear that from you. So this week, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Rick Faw. Rick Faw is Vice President of Programming with Arosha Canada. Arosha is an international Christian organization which, inspired by God's love, engages in scientific research, environmental education, community-based conservation projects, and sustainable agriculture. Rick has been a lead educator with Arosha Canada since 2004. He became VP of Programming in 2014. Rick combines academic backgrounds in uh, science and, and theology with a love for the outdoors. He has a Bachelor of Science from Trinity Western University in Langley, British Columbia, and a Master's in Christian Studies from Regent College, Vancouver. His desires for people to integrate their spiritual life with their experience of the created world. Rick, his wife Krista, and their teenagers Jared and Zoe live and play alongside six other households at Kingfisher Farm in Surrey, BC, which is part of Greater Van- the Greater Vancouver area, where you can just about see the United States from your house, right, Rick? It's true. Yeah, we're half a kilometer from the U.S., something like that. Yeah, so as many people know, my family and I, we lived in the what's called the Lower Mainland. That's the that's the secret term for Metro Vancouver. So we lived in the Lower yeah. Mainland 16 years, two different stints. Uh, six of our 10 kids were born there. And, uh, you know, every part, everywhere you live has interesting things, like the fact that Surrey has a zero avenue. Mm-hmm. It does. And there's a part right near where my house is where there's literally a ditch, like zero Avenue, a ditch, and then the U.S. Do you think I can get That's in trouble? Do you think I can get in trouble for saying on the air that years ago I start? I did a walk at Peace Arch Park, mm-hmm. and Peace Arch Park mm-hmm. is this yep. beautiful place. Uh, we used to have picnics there. It's right on the U.S. border. In fact, part of the yep. of park is on the U.S. side. Mm-hmm. The other That's part's right. on the Canadian side. There's this wonderful arch that has inscribed mm-hmm. Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And I was there once by myself, and I was walking around, and I saw, oh, I could just, and I stepped onto the sidewalk on the U.S. side, not realizing that I probably was creating some sort of international uh, crisis, because you're really not allowed to do that. But there was, there's no guards, there's no police, it's just maybe I shouldn't be telling people this, but, and I don't, is it, is it, is Peace Arch Park still like that now? It, it is. It's been, during the pandemic, the Canadian U.S. Uh, officials have treated it quite differently. So the Canadian side was shut down for much of the, the pandemic. The American side was still open. And because of a quirk of, of international law, you can enter the park from, the, like, I'm, a, I'm from the Canadian side, and the Americans can enter the park from the American side, and you can meet people right as long as neither of you like you say step onto the other sidewalk yeah so that's that's and quite a an anomaly is that the right word in very in just very much Canadian an territory and american territorial yeah, yeah. Uh, uh for sure yeah it's it is really and, something so you there, can visit there have your... been dozens of families who are separated by the border during the pandemic that have met there that is wonderful dozens. i think we're going to see dozens an in- increase as a as a result of this podcast there you go yeah, so why don't we start, why, mm. can you explain in more detail what Arosha is and what it does? Mm. Yeah, well, I'll start with the name. So Arosha means the rock in Portuguese. And we have this Portuguese name because Arosha started in Portugal. So it started because a British couple, Peter and Miranda Harris, <clears throat> Peter was a, an Anglican curate who was passionate, like ridiculously head over heels for birds. And Southern Portugal 
is a major migratory flyway for birds going to and from Africa and Europe. So they founded a bird observatory in the early 80s on the southern tip of Portugal at this estuary where all these migratory birds go. And the thing was, they did that as Christian mission. Like they were sent there as missionaries to start a bird observatory. So at the time, so they're reaching 80s, out, they're reaching out to birds. I, I'll try not to. Well, that, that I'm not being kind of silly. That that is, I'm sure, the That's way what many it sounds people, like uh, at the time, and maybe even today, still think of it. But they thought of it as this is one component of what it means to follow Christ is to care for creation. And so they did that in southern Portugal for roughly ten years, and then they handed it off to Portuguese leadership, and they they ran it kind of as like this, um, a home. Like they had four kids that was open to the visitors. So if you went and joined them, it was, I've heard people say it was sort of a mashup between like Labrie and a conservation field studies center and like a hostel or something like that. So like- For those who don't know about Labrie, it was originally founded as a, a place for university type students, intellectual types to, to find God. Yeah, yeah. and to talk about faith, to yeah. talk about faith, talk about what it, why we do what we do. So they had all types go through there. And eventually they discovered, hey, some of those folks that went through said, we love what you're doing. Can we do it where we are, like back in my home country? And this sparked uh, projects around the world. And so fast forward to today, and there's about 20 countries around the world that have some sort of a Russia project. And I work for the Canadian one. Um, in Canada, we have projects spread across the country. And our focus is, and Russia everywhere, the focus is centrally caring for creatures, particularly endangered species and then caring for the habitats that they depend upon. So habitat restoration and species monitoring is kind of, I've often described as sort of like the core work. But then around that core, we do environmental education, whether that's with kids, like school kids, or whether that's like conferences for adults or, or preaching in churches. Basically it's education to try to link for people, um, birds, bugs, plants, air, water, soil, these things actually matter to everyone because the health of these things is uh, directly linked to our health and they matter in particularly to Christ. And therefore we believe they should matter to people who follow Christ. So that's kind of the education bit. Then a few projects also have layered on this uh, sustainable agriculture component. Um, and this is meant to be an, uh, a link. So like my mother, for instance, God bless her. I love her dearly. Um, she couldn't care a whit for, um, you know, Salish suckers, one of the species we study nearby here. It's just this tiny little fish. Um, Salish she suckers? Salish sucker, like a Say tiny little ig ig ignoble fish, right? She doesn't care about those, but she loves her flowers. You know, she's into that. So the point is not everybody's into conservation. Not everybody has like, you know, a passion for birds or for whatever other wildlife snails or frogs, but everybody eats. And the single biggest impact, human impact on the planet's biosphere, like the life support structures of the planet is food. So the growing, the distribution, the way, dealing with the waste, all of the aspects that have, that are associated with food, that's our biggest impact. So the extent to which we can model agriculture in a way that is regenerative, that builds biodiversity rather than compromise it, that's actually conservation work. So, and, it, and it's also this bridge. It's this way to get people in. People, everybody eats. So everybody in that sense is, uh, can do conservation. So those are the kind of the three primary ways that we go about our work. And then, but all of that is uh, embedded in a kind of ethic and practice of hosting. So whether you come for an hour or whether you come for nine months or you come on staff and you come and live, um, there's this dynamic of inviting people in to join in that work, kind of wherever they're coming from, and they get to help in all three of those, those kind of primary uh, program areas. So you there's also a have a little bit about Russia. Right. So you have a community, that's a, the community yeah. aspect to what you do. Um, yeah, definitely. So you, sometimes so, that's a lived community and sometimes that's like just being very intentional about the neighborhood and the watershed in which we work. So we started off with birds mm -hmm. and are, are you saying, so bird 
<clears throat> am I right to call it bird conservation? Uh, yeah, that would, and be, then that's that would be one slice of, of conservation. Like you could also have conservation that's to deal with frogs or with mammals or with invertebrates or so, other creatures. Yeah, I don't know if I heard anyone talk about environmental concerns very specifically this way about a direct connection to food. Now that original mm. couple, which I'm sorry, I didn't... Peter and Miranda Harris. Okay, so Peter and Miranda, when they... There's a couple things I want to explore. So, so mm. let's let's go back to them and... and and they were, you said they were missionaries in Portugal. They mm -hmm. loved birds. They started this. Now, is there a bit of bait and switch going on? Like, so you open up mm -hmm. this bird sanctuary so you can mm -hmm. somehow talk spiritual things with people. And right. it's really not about the birds, mm -hmm. which then it means it's not really about the food. And can you unpack right. that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a common question. People have asked that of Arasha, certainly of Peter Miranda originally, but they've asked that of Arasha repeatedly. And the, the response is, no, it's not, a, it's not a means to an end. It's an end. So our understanding would be, is that as followers of Christ, we need to care about what Christ cares about. We believe Christ is the, cent is the center. Christ created. Colossians 1. He is the creator, sustainer, and restorer of all things, everything, tapanta. So that suggests, among many other parts of theology and scripture, God cares about what he made. So we should too. So we see this as simply a part of living out the Christian life. And that I'm not saying that every Christian should be a frog expert. But I, I, as I understand it, I do think every Christian has a role to play in caring for creation in some form, in a yeah, similar but, way right. that not every Christian is called to preach, sure. but every Christian is called to, in some way, support uh, the spread of Christ's name. But if, if, so. if God's got the whole world in his hands, why should I care about um, Salish suckers? It doesn't, you know, isn't that God say, I got that. You know, you take care of the mm. spiritual stuff. I'll take care of all the, the, <clears throat> the, the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. Well, I mean, one way to respond to that is similar to, um, well, God says, I've got all other people in my hands. So I don't need to bother with those either. It's just about me and my own. Like I just, all I have to do is worry about my relationship with God and that's it. And then, Whatever happens well, to all the people around me, whether that's my wife or my neighbor or people across the world, well, God's got it. God's got it. And there might be some people that, that actually think that. Um, well, so, okay, so I, I okay. don't. <laughs> okay, and I, I, I accept that. Um, but are you saying, therefore, that just like we're responsible for other people, we're responsible for? I keep wanting to come back to the sailor suckers. That's that's a little bit your fault, but uh, <laughs> that's fine. I'm sure you've got mind. I'm sure you got some other interesting uh, creatures uh, that you can uh, can share with us as well. That we red-legged uh, frogs, the western toads. The, you know, we could yeah, but sailor suckers. Anyway, um, yeah, it's a good one. So, <clears throat> does our God-given responsibility, from a biblical perspective, and I'm putting you on the spot here, can you? Can you make a biblical case apart from simply saying, you know, we should, we need to care? Is there a biblical basis for caring for the small and large creatures and 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 these areas of the planet? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's a a number of ways to sort of go at that. Um, I mean, I think the start is the first, uh, one of the first commandments in Genesis that are given to humans is to till and to keep the garden, Genesis 2.15. And I don't think that has ever been rescinded. No matter whatever ha else is happening in the biblical story, that still stands. Uh, and noteworthy, that is uh, prior to rebellion against God. So I, I think there is a biblical case to be made that that will probably continue in the new heavens, new earth. We will still be tilling and keeping. It seems to me that the garden was meant to be this sort of like starting point 
how can we allow this, how can we be a part of allowing this to flourish? Um, insofar as, and insofar as God is kind of creator of all, like he definitely is, it seems to me this is yet another way in which he invites us to join him. God invites us to join in the work of the spirit in bringing life everywhere, uh, in life into you and to me and, and uh, to my, my family, my friends, but also life in creation. I think the spirit is at the root of all of that. And um, caring for creation is just a way that God invites us to join in that. So yes, we have a responsibility. That's one way to describe it. I also think it's just as much an opportunity. This is a chance for us to join in what God is already doing. So how do we go about doing that, for instance? Well, it seems to me we are made in God's, we're made in God's image. Humans are created in God's image. So we are supposed to image God. Well, what does God do? Well, God, the, the creature is under his care. He loved so much that he wanted the best for them so much that he really wouldn't stop at anything to make that happen. Like he went right to Christ coming, incarnating, not just incarnating, but dying, suffering, for our sake. Um, and I think we're supposed to follow that model. Okay, so what is the sphere, the realm the, that God has delegated to our purview? Well, that's earth, at least. You could argue creation, although we haven't made it to too many other inter, other planets yet, but at least earth. And and well, how are we supposed to engage that? Well, I think we should engage it. We should follow Christ. How did Christ do that? Well, he, what does Philippians 2 say? Like, considered equality with God, not something to be grasped, but made himself a servant, even unto death, for the sake of the people under his care. Well, I think we're doing something similar. I go to John 3.16, like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he died for, for us. Well, the word their world in Greek is cosmos. It's not just people. It includes people, but it's cosmos. God so loved the world that he sent his son. God so loved the cosmos that he sent yeah, his I, son. I refer to that as the created um, order. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So if God and Christ care about it that much, then I think that's what we're called to do as well. Yeah. So I wonder, it depends on how how thorough, but there's a there's a yeah, kind of yeah. snapshot. Yeah, that's that, that's helpful. Um, I wonder if one of the problems we face among many believers today with regard to environmental concern, concern for the creation, is life has moved to the cities and most of us are spending more time on things like Zoom and YouTube to do podcasts like this and all the ways we engage technology. We're so far removed from, from the earth when in fact, unless somebody is planting seed and, and tending those plants and doing all the agricultural stuff, we all die. Plain and simple. And most of the history of the world, human beings were, were close to the land. That's how life worked. And it's only in more recent history, relatively, that many of us, and in some parts of the world, most of us, are disconnected <clears throat> from the land. It, so it, it sounds like if we go back a century, or maybe even not that much, we would hardly even have to have this conversation because mm -hmm. people knew that we need to needed to give priority to the land or else we die. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I sometimes, <clears throat> two things I wanna say about this. One, <clears throat> um, sometimes when I've had people, you know, in, in not so many words say, well, I'm glad that you care about all these wild things, but it's not really my deal. I, I have, I don't know if I've ever been quite so bold and snarky, but in my head, I want to respond to them. Okay, fair enough. Well, but which part is not your part? <clears throat> the food part? <laughs> you know, you can do without that. The air part? <clears throat> I don't need that part. The water part? I don't need that part. Like the shelter part? Which part don't you need? Like, 
I think it's totally true that um, throughout history and in other parts of the world, even presently, there are many people, I'd, I'd argue most, are far more aware of the fact that all of our lives, including urbanites, resolutely depend upon the life support structures of the planet. We cannot do without them. We will, we will die without them. Most people recognize that because they get their shelter, they get their water, they get their food, they get their medicine, they get their fuel. <clears throat> they get all of these things directly daily from creation. We go to, you know, I go to the, I go to the supermarket to get my food. Well, actually, I do grow some food, but often I go to the supermarket to get some food, you know? So I, I am, you're right that this connection is there. The second thing I want to say is insofar as this is true, human life, even though we often forget it, or maybe are insulated from the fact, some of us are insulated from the fact that our lives uh, fundamentally depend upon creation, even though that's the case, even, even though we forget it, if it is true that people's lives are fundamentally dependent on creation, then caring for creation is a way that I serve and love them. If my actions undercut, compromise, degrade the life support structures that other people depend on, how is that loving? I don't think it is. <laughs> like, I think it's, I, so in this regard, I think um, caring for creation, I've, I've heard like loving God, uh, sorry, worshiping God, loving people and caring for creation is like a three-legged stool. You really can't have one without the, any one without the other two. They all go together. And this is backed up biblically time and time again. <clears throat> uh, so for many of us, we just take the, we take, I'm calling it the land, but it's the land, the air, mm -hmm. the water mm -hmm. for, for granted. And I guess mm -hmm. many of us are just plain spoiled. And then yeah. when we hear people like yourselves or other people talk about env environmental concern and so on, um, it sounds, for some of us, it sounds like noise. Now, mm -hmm. and yet, I, I don't know how many people who are really hot on the topic of the environment kind of get that we're actually talking about food and, and, and what amounts to daily survival and care of fellow human beings. Um, you know, I, but I don't know how much I want to, want to park there. I want, one of the things I want to mention is, you know, most Bible believers that I know, um, and the majority are non-Jewish Christians are very, very New Testament focused. And, and one of the things that I do in, in my Bible teaching is I, as well as with this podcast is try to reestablish a holistic biblical understanding. And I, I make the claim, which I think is biblically uh, well-founded that you cannot understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament and vice versa, mm -hmm. but the New Testament is actually built on the foundation of the Hebrew Scriptures. But when you think of the New Testament in isolation, and maybe you know some passages, can you think of an, of New Testament passages that, the, apart from John 3.16, which most people would not understand, most people think John 3.16 is, uh, is a statement about God's love for you and me as individuals, not for the mm -hmm. created order, which I believe is more correct, that Jesus actually died for creation. And we can be part of his creation restoration plan by believing in him. And if we believe in him, we'll not perish, but have the, the life of the age to come, which is really, the I think, the best mm -hmm. way to understand John 3.16. Um, but is there do you know of any passages in the New Testament that draw us to the issue of creation care? I'll, I want to I come to the Hebrew Scriptures, but I'm just focusing mm -hmm. for a moment on the New Testament by itself. Well, I've already mentioned one. Colossians 1 is the preeminent one. Um, so in Colossians 1, the first oh, 20 verses or so, uh, particularly 15 to 20, is this, uh, some scholars would say it's a hymn, actually. Um, and it extols how Christ is the center of, and then it lists, Christ is the center of creation. Like all that exists is due to him. Christ is at the center of sustaining what is. Uh, everything exists and continues to exist because of Christ. 
And Christ is at the center of the redemption of all things uh, through his work on the cross. So there you've got this affirmation. I'm not sure how much stronger to, to put it, that Christ cares about everything he's made. I think another thing that I would point to is simply the incarnation. Um, some folks have noted the fact that divine creator, that the creator would take on createdness has got to be like the biggest stamp of approval for matter that you could possibly think of. Yeah, like I agree. What would be matter, a, matter matters. Matter matters. Like how else could you conceive? Like how else, what other, what else can I interpret from that? Um, and especially given that things like Paul's exhortation in Colossians and John's description in John 3, these sorts of things, they point to, ah, this is an abiding, constant uh, concern for the creator. God cares about this. So, I mean, I could point to other little bits. I think it's Mark's gospel that ends with, go and uh, preach the gospel to all creation. That's an interesting one. Like, what, what does that mean then? To What would it look like to preach the gospel to all creation? Huh. Um, I, I've got some ideas on that. I think another uh, key part, particularly New Testament, is um, our understanding of the age to come, the new heavens, new earth. The picture given in Revelation is that this, the realm of God comes down to the realm of people, comes down to earth. And this, I mean, I don't, I don't think we give enough, we're given enough data to know how that works or what that looks like exactly. But what is clear is that it's not a, it's not a rejection of, it's a fusing with um, creation. The prophets describe heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. It's from Isaiah. Um, the, my, the picture of the age to come is that all of creation becomes the place where God dwells, similar to the Garden of Eden, similar to the Holy of Holies, similar to the, the spirit in us, similar to the life of the spirit in the, in the gathered church, the embodied church. Like These are all threads where, similar to the incarnation, what is Peterson's translation? He moved into the neighborhood. Uh, this is referring to John one. So like all of these, all of these kind of trajectories point to God's plan. God's overarching purpose has, is, has creation as a part of it. So, yeah. And that's, this is the sort of thing that I think a lot of, a lot of us miss that God really cares about the whole creation. It's not, Jesus didn't just die for souls, disembodied, whatever those are supposed to be, that God initiated a creation project at the beginning. He loved that creation project. Uh, he had an opportunity to completely obliterate it in Noah's day, but he didn't. He rebooted it instead. That's, I like using that term. And that shows his commitment to it. And it's not just the people, it's the animals. And, the, and of course, then there's the land. Um, and so I, I think you described it well talking about in Colossians, you know, what did, you know, what are the cosmic effects of what Jesus really did is, is it just for the people? Is it just for the souls? It seems it's far more than that. And, and that makes a case for the value of creation, which right at the beginning, Genesis one, we were called, we were given the responsibility through our, the, our first parents to subdue the land. That was the very first thing. And as you said, he's never rescinded that mandate. And talking as a Canadian about mandates today, uh, people will come on different sides of it, but there are heavenly established mandates that God has, has put in place that he's never taken back. And, and much of what it means to um, help people truly walk with God is to help people understand all that he has called us to do. And it's not simply a set of spiritual things that are that are disconnected from from the rest of life. So speaking of that, there's I want to come back to how you've connected environmental concern with food, <clears throat> which, as I said, um, maybe I haven't been paying attention, um, but mm -hmm. I haven't heard it put so 
simple as that that simply can you can you talk about that a little more about how can like so we lived in bc we've been to those marine areas where you're not allowed you're not allowed to take away a rock you're not allowed to to pick those little nice little leafy plants or those little wildflowers you have to leave them because it's a protected area and in fact you know when i was a kid like who cared about any of that stuff you know just mm-hmm. you know you you I think you're still allowed to blow the dandelion seeds. Maybe there's areas where you know, you're not allowed to do that anymore. I don't know. But for some of us, it seems kind of strange. You know, don't don't take away the rocks. Can you explain why that kind of conservation? It, how is that connected to food? Mm. Well, um, I mean, this is some of this is uh, rooted in in ecology. So when humans grow food, they uh, most typically transform the landscape. Uh, And in a particular style of agriculture, it involves moving towards mostly monocrops. This can be particularly uh, fruitful. It can, it can, you can get a lot of food. I'm going to have to explain. I think I know what you mean by monocrops, but most, I've never used that word before. On a particular patch of land, there's only one crop that's growing that we harvest. Right. So So it's like for for kilometers or miles, it's corn. It's all corn. Yeah, exactly. That would be one example. Canola. Whereas what existed there before human agriculture would be a really complex ecosystem with dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, maybe even thousands of not just creatures, but different types of creatures all growing there. So that kind of uh, immense biodiversity, there's just one example. The same is true in a whole bunch of other types of ecosystems. The, the, the trend line is to optimize yield, we diminish biodiversity. And from ecologically speaking, biodiversity is life. So the, the, an example here would be, say, in our, um, in our efforts to increase yield, we use forms of pesticides that compromise bees. Well, you could say, what are bees going to do? Well, they do a whole bunch of things in, in an ecosystem. But one of the things that they do that we really care about is they pollinate. And they pollinate, like, I think it's about a third of all human food and because of what we're doing bees are collapsing okay so caring for bees is part of caring for food and vice versa the way we grow food has an awful lot to do with uh this particular insect and of course i mean just to use this example bees are one little creature within a whole ecosystem of creatures so what you do with the bees is going to affect birds it's going to affect the soil it's going to affect you know that's the way ecosystems work. So you could do a similar thought experiment with water. So almost all agriculture involves water. And usually, at least where I am here, it has meant draining what was formerly thought of as a useless swamp <laughs> so that it can become fertile cropland. Well, yeah, it is fertile, but the swamp wasn't useless. <laughs> It has ecological significance in the, in the services it performs, not least biodiversity. The most biodiverse places on earth are wetlands. So you get the most, uh, and the reason about it, one of the reasons biodiversity is so important is for resilience. As soon as you thin out, as soon as you start taking like um, pages out of the, the encyclopedia of creation, like you, it's i'm going to mix metaphors here it's like a it's like a jenga tower you know you see the jenga tower and you start pulling out bits well i don't really need that one i don't really need that one i don't really need that one but at some point you're going to come to one that you that you need and we don't know in advance exactly which one that is so biodiversity is the the kind of um rock bottom foundation of sustaining life on this planet Without it, no life exists. So one of the things this makes me think of is 
So God commanded human beings to subdue the earth. And in order to properly take care of this planet, I believe, and I think you would agree, that we weren't just supposed to live off the berries and just kind of migrate around and pick the berries. That the idea of, of clearing land and and creating agricultural um, developments, that, that that would be a good thing. Um, domesticating animals. Um, and am I right? That's that in itself is not where the problem lies. Is that correct? Or or do yeah. you believe that we should actually just kind of go back to this kind of like just live off the berries? Then yeah, I think there to, is one. We have to leave Canada. <laughs> sure, I think there's one line of thought that would say, and, and there there are other religions that would believe this. Like humans are the problem, and the more we can minimize what humans do, the better. And the the end point of that kind of philosophy is well. I just stop eating and then die. Uh, and that's, that's the best thing I can do. I don't think that's the biblical perspective. I think uh, the, the language of ecological footprint or carbon footprint is often, is, is become much more common in, in our parlance these days. So you'll understand this as a metaphor. It's like, how big is my impact ecologically? It's a way to try to measure that or picture that. The problem I have is it's only negative. Like as in, what is my negative impact? I think scripturally, biblically, humans are called to have an impact. It's just an impact of flourishing. Where we go, where we live is supposed to be, we should see this kind of ripple of life springing up everywhere. So a good example of this, really tangible example of this, look up like Ethiopian forest churches or something like that. Google that. And you'll get these, these pictures of the, this Ethiopian landscape that is barren, except for these little pockets of dense, lush forest that are all centered around churches. And it's the way that these churches have... Um, uh, maintained what other practices have lost. And to me, that's more like what we're shooting for. When the, the language of subdue, I want to say, has to be paired with the language of tilling and keeping and the model of Christ. Christ's form, Christ's method of subduing was self-sacrifice for the health and flourishing of the other. Okay, if that's the type of subduing we're talking about, I'm all in. Because that's going to mean that we're talking metaphorically and maybe even literally more about, you mentioned picking fruit. We have a bunch of fruit trees on my property here. The only fruit trees that thrive are the ones that are pruned intelligently. When they are pruned intelligently, bumper crop. When they are either neglected or pruned like ignorantly, then they really suffer. All right, so take that as a practical example. Like what it would look like for us to engage with creation and, and meet human needs, but in a way that allows for the thriving and flourishing of all creatures. That's what we're called to do. That is what it would mean to, as I understand it, biblically rule and subdue, to till and to keep, to follow Christ in a way that is... Uh, and then, and then the metaphor becomes not a footprint that is like we're trying to minimize. No, we're trying to maximize. We're trying to optimize our impact. We're trying to, we're trying to have a bigger impact because where followers of Christ go, there is life, life abundant, and not just life for people, but life. And, and I say that as a meaning we need to like I, life for other creatures, but those are connected. Remember, like the flourishing of creatures is the foundation for the flourishing of people. And yeah, I really, not. I really like the, it's not the, it's a pruning <clears throat> metaphor only when it doesn't apply literally to fruit trees, but that idea that the call to subdue is a call to prune. It's to engage the creation in such a way to bring about, as you said, flourishing. So, 
it's not a call to exploit for maximum profits and some other with some other time with some other person we could talk about economic systems and you know th these sorts of issues but you know when you when you brought up monocrops and um figured out what that meant the only reason why we could have uh these these large large swaths of land that have nothing but corn or nothing about canola is because we're actually part of this bigger kind of global agricultural thing where this farmer produces nothing but this one thing that he then mm -hmm. sets sells to and you would know more than me on this to the international market and then we're getting some of our basic things from who knows how many thousands of kilometers away and it's this huge system that's very difficult for for the average person to even perceive what's going on and mm -hmm. i have the impression that it's that the motive isn't human flourishing the motive is is profit and again there's nothing wrong with making a profit in and of itself but if you're making a profit and destroying uh the 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 that which god has ordained to provide nutrition to his to humans all you're it's a very very narrow view it's all about the prophet it's not about am i making again am i making sense here yeah i i would be a little more pointed even i think <clears throat> it's not just profit that's at the root of it actually i i don't think i think it's my it's my desire for whatever i want I want whatever I want and I want it now. So where I'm going at here is so like I have a I have family members who are farmers and I know a bunch of large scale farmers. So I, that I'm not sure if we'll get to that. There's a couple of qualifications I would want to say this this conversation is focused on farming a little more than I anticipated, but there are ways I'd want to I'm happy to go there, but I don't know if we want to go there. What I will say is that driving most food production particularly where I live in kind of a Western kind of society is the demand for any type of food at any time of the year in any place. So I, I expect that I can go somewhere nearby and any day, 365 days a year and get cherries or strawberries fresh or, you know, whatever it is. So when it comes to like, I don't have a lot of advice to give to farmers. I think they need to, like, I just, I'm not a, I'm not a, that's not my skill set. They need to figure that out. What I do have a lot of advice for though is eaters <laughs> and I'm one of them. And I think one of the ways in which people can care for creation through their food, this is, I have lots of advice on this, but one would be just eat more seasonally get in tune with what is ripe where you are at this time of the year and at least shift inch inch i try to inch my diet in that direction it doesn't mean that i don't buy anything out of season but okay can i inch my diet in that direction this is an example of what it would mean to both be uh, it illustrates both my complicity but also also my agency in food systems and how that then can impact larger conservation concerns. Um, I kind of lost the thread there. Yeah, <laughs> so without, realizing say, you, to... without realizing it, you've gotten very personal uh, because for the longest time uh, we have a routine at our home is uh, part of our breakfast is fruit bowls. Uh, okay. Fresh, yeah. never frozen. Yeah. Uh, okay. Never our own, uh, all bought from the store. And yeah. so I had strawberries and blueberries yeah. this morning, and I expect that I will have them again tomorrow. Now, if I need to give up my blueberries and strawberries in the middle of, of winter, uh, and, I, and I, I remember, it wasn't that long ago where it used to be, uh, they're not in season, you don't get them. And something changed, I don't know when it was, yeah. that all these things are regularly available. Um, and, and often at decent prices too. 
which is because yeah. I, I remember the other thing oh yeah you That's can get the these problem. strawberries there's a little tiny box and it was exorbitant but now you know you go to that that place where you have yeah. to pay money just to be able to go inside this very big warehouse where you you know where you're accosted by the 80 inch tvs it'll remain nameless and you get <clears throat> these two pound uh packages of huge wonderful strawberries at at decent prices now if if our changing our diet is going to make a difference let, let for argument's sake let's say i'd be willing to do it but here's a big question so you don't eat blueberries in in february where you are i do uh, oh you can follow up with that <laughs> i had some this morning well are they your own that you froze or or did you uh, that they're, from, they're from a farmer down the street that i froze okay so you froze okay and and we lived in that area and a lot of people you know, the, the, the you pick blueberries and strawberries and raspberries and in, in in that part of vancouver is wonderful but that yeah never mind that so we 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 i don't know where ours were from but they were not local um so let's say for argument's sake i'd be willing to help the worldwide community in in ensuring that we have a better future for the access of food but what difference does it make whether or not tomorrow my my wife goes to that same store or that other store that she goes to and buys the the blueberries and strawberries like you made it sound very noble and as if it's going to make a difference but what difference does it make yeah i mean there's a couple of things i wanted to I would want to say to that um, one, I think the part of the part of the advantages of our current system, the way the way like a food system and that's tied up with our economic systems is that it encourages a depersonalization. I'm encouraged to ignore and be oblivious to the people and places behind everything we're talking about food but it could be like my phone or my glasses or this water bottle or the pen or whatever everything we're encouraged to be oblivious to it, this whole thing is set up to ignore those relationships but those relationships exist okay how am i contributing to the flourishing or the degradation of those relationships i think that's one way to start to frame oh wait a minute so then when it gets back to, okay, do I go down to the grocery store down the street and buy the strawberries from Mexico or whatever? It could be, well, there are farmers in Mexico that are benefiting from this. Great. How much are they benefiting? Oh, wait a minute. These strawberries are dirt cheap. Huh. They're probably not benefiting that much. A little bit of investigation into that are probably going to get you into some, some, uh, some discovery of the way that supply chain has some inequities in it. Hmm. But, what could I do that would be different about that? We've got a, we've got let, a huge, me, yeah, go ahead. Let me, yep. let me, finish, let me go on. Another part would be, well, what about the local farmers? What, what, what could I do? So like making shifts, even small shifts away from uh, the faceless nameless can cultivate relationships with people who are in my neighborhood. What would it look like to support them? And to be willing to maybe pay a little bit more because they're they're here. They I know I start to trust. I get to know and I start to trust. This farmer actually cares about the river that runs through their property, and they're taking measures to um, encourage the biodiversity and the flourishing of the creatures in that river. Now that's costly to him or her. What can I do to support that? That's something I care about. Well, I can buy food from them instead of from someplace i don't know um, i could so do that but i could do that in july and august it's not going to make yeah. a difference now i know I, maybe i could buy right. lots of freeze you, it you can't do it yeah yeah fair enough but still and, and also <clears> the <throat> thing is though so what you did your little bit there with your water bottle and your glasses yeah. and, and all the mm -hmm. rest that um so i could i could have a discussion with my wife we're going to stop our fruit yeah. bowls for a little while but where does it end but, yeah but the thing where is that, wa that water bottle those glasses and those cool headphones with the fancy mic that you yeah. have around your neck there yeah. um again 
if I want to make a difference, I know in one sense, every little bit helps, but when it becomes so minuscule, what difference is it really making? And this is, and, 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 and one of the things I've been going through in all, in all honesty over the past few weeks is I want to look more at the whole big thing because I think there's, there's something going on with the, the way we consume, with the way, the, the, the commercialization of everything, um, the way businesses are, are set up today. And I don't know what the response is. You know, I, we had a, our own little chat about a, a, a couple of weeks ago, you described where you live and, and with the other people uh, on the property and you're doing an alternative um, way of living on the land that could, maybe that's the model for more of us to move towards um, something that is more sustainable and more loving towards the planet is more like pruning than exploitation. But it seems to me that if we don't do something on a bigger scale, we're not going to make that much of a difference, which would lead us, and we're really at the end of our time, so maybe you're going to have to come back, because there are people that are saying, well, there are these big things to do, and so, yeah. no, everybody's got got to get electric cars, and everybody needs to celebrate Earth Day and turn off the lights for an hour, and that's going to make all the difference. We need these large-scale international uh, mm -hmm. dictates, and that's going to fix everything. I, I have my doubts. Uh, I think it's going to happen far more along the, the personal line that maybe, you know, can you, because we don't have a lot of time, can we maybe mm -hmm. end with what you're actually doing and some of the things that, could you, could you do that? I'm not sure what you're referring, I'm actually doing. Where you're living and, and, and. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you're teasing me here, Alan. Like I want to respond to so many different parts. I'm of sorry. Come so on. you're gonna you're gonna have to come back. <laughs> but um, uh, okay. So so there's a there's a couple of things here. One, at least briefly, you're gonna have to let me say. I definitely think that there are large scale structural changes that are required in order to be commensurate to meet the scale of the problems. I'm not that that is true. I agree with that. Where I'm a little skeptical is that we collectively, whatever that we is, my my household, my town, my church, my province, my country, our globe, whatever the we is, I'm a little skeptical that we are going to be able to make the choices that are needed in the big things if we're not willing to do it on the little things. So I think that's a dynamic. Second, um, I care a lot about doing, like being effective. What is the biggest bang for buck impact? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's a problem when that becomes the only rubric. And it's a problem for Christ followers. Because the question of like, well, why bother? It's not going to make a difference could also be said of a whole bunch of other things that are involved with following Christ. Prayer, attending church on Sunday morning. What good does preaching do? Like, don't get me started. Like the list is long. Like why bother is a question that goes for a whole bunch of things. I just think it's a misplaced question if, and this is my contention, if I believe that God's picture of the world is the, is the truly realistic one. It's the, it's when I'm tempted to say, no, God isn't, God's picture isn't the realistic one. This isn't God's project. This is my project. I'm the one who has to save. That's when I can fall into the temptation of, look, it's all about the highest impact, the best bang for buck kind of thing. Like it's only, that's the only thing that matters. That's when I'm tempted. When I, when I want to save the world, that's where I can go. But the world has a savior and it's not me. So there, I'd say that. Um, there's so much more. So what, what I think then is one of the most crucial things is that I think the deceiver has captured our imaginations as much as anything else. So what does it mean to live? What is the good life all about? What does that look like? Like I thought it was 
having the freedom to go on vacations and watch Netflix and eat whatever I want at any time of the year. And, you know, whatever, like, that's what I thought it was, you know, whatever the big house, all that kind of stuff. Like, and that's what our society tells us constantly. And I'm, I want to challenge that. I want to say, I don't think that really is what it's about. So as part of challenging that I, our household is a part of a 10 acre farm that includes six other households. We co-own this place. We live here. Some of us are growing food. All of us are trying to increase the biodiversity on the property. All of us are trying to engage with the local community uh, that lives literally across the street and comes to our farm market. Uh, most of us have like off property jobs. Like it's not, it's not, but we are trying to model an overlapped life that has in mind things like the flourishing of creatures, the, uh, the ability to grow food in ways that is regenerative for um, biodiversity, that encourages hospitality and intentional relationship with all our neighbors, human and non-human, that, um, you know, I could list more, that, that we self-govern in a way that is based on consensus, for instance, you know, like, so there's a, there's a variety of things that we're doing. And I would be really hesitant and it would feel like for me a failure if people that encounter what we're doing go away and say, well, we just have to do that. No, no, don't do that. What I want and what I hope for is that through what we're doing, the spirit can spark a new imagination in other people for what is possible wherever they are. It's not going to be like this. There's a, I could describe some of the idiosyncratic, unique aspects of what we're doing. And it's probably not going to, like, almost certainly it's not going to be the same for you or somebody else. It's going to look different. But that's what the spirit does. The spirit takes our individual gifts, our individual possibilities, takes into consideration our context, and, and will inspire, that's the word, inspire life. Okay, well, what does that look like? I would love for people to encounter Kingfisher Farm or Arasha. I think Arasha is doing this as well. And not try to cookie cutter, but rather ask the question, okay, spirit, what do you have for me? Whether that's me in my life, me in my household, me in my neighborhood, me in my church, me in my watershed. Like, what does that look like for me? I think it'll be very different. And I could, if we had more time, I could describe a whole bunch of stories about how it looks differently for different people. It's not a cookie cutter. But to me, that's the, that's the aroma of the spirit. That tells me like when it is different, that's what the spirit is doing. There is so much uh, of a glory in um, the individuality of different people and places. And when people come to Christ, they don't become less of who they are. They become more of who they are, they become who they truly are meant to be in Christ. Well, I think this is an, an element of that, just maybe on a communal scale. The last thing I'll say, when I can do some of that in conjunction with other people, it also mitigates the sense of like, I can't make a difference because I can make a difference with other people and I can see it. I can document what's happened here and how it's different now. Well, I wanted to so jump. That's helps. exactly where I want. I wanted to jump in with what you just explained, and then you explained it. Mm. Um, and I see, uh, and I don't know if it's because I don't want to give up my blueberries, um, <laughs> or what I'm seeing in what you're doing in your community, making a, a sufficient, reasonable difference that my not eating blueberries tomorrow is not going to make. Like if I just do that myself, with well, What's that about? And especially since um, I'm still going to be doing all the other ways of interacting with our society that is probably yeah. right, contributing to the problem. Um, so, and the, the thing that you said about you're not expecting cookie cutter response to people visiting your farm. Um, I And that I agree with you. In, in a lot of things that we do, we often expect that we're, we're going to, we, we find some solution and we expect everybody to do the same thing. And other people yeah, expect, oh, they're it. just... Right. No, so I'm, I'm with you. But the thing is, the things that you're, the principles that you're living by, communal living, um, a responsibility and how you're de taking responsibility for how you deal with the land, your neighbors, 
um, inviting the neighbors to interact with your community, and you could do a better list than me. Um, you are you are challenging everybody around you and calling them to godly living, mm-hmm. which includes all the personal the personal side and the the environmental side, etc. Et which of course, our stopping to eat footballs tomorrow is really not going to do that at all unless we start a stop eating football movement or something right but but you're actually living out um uh genuine godliness in a particular way that god's called you to that then challenges other people to question how we're living and i think i want to see more of that yeah I'd, i'd want the question to be for those that are christ followers to be to the spirit absolutely Spirit of god what do you have for me to do so, like, you ask the spirit that, and he might say, forget about the fruit bowls. That's not, <laughs> Alan, that's not what I'm on about. Well, I'm pretty like, sure that's what he so, says. <laughs> that's, I, well, that, that's for you to kind of work out with the spirit. Like, it's not me. Like, I would want to, and this is my experience, when I have engaged other people that have challenged me on things, and it's like, no way, I'm never doing that. But it sort of plants this seed, and the spirit works in me like that. And it's like, and maybe it doesn't manifest in my life, well, certainly not immediately, it's rare. It's rare that it's immediate, and it's rare that it's exactly the same. But the spirit uses that example to then, when I'm open to the spirit's work in my life, when I'm open to that question of like, okay, well, how would you? What do you have for me? How? What are you calling me to? How can I join your work in bringing life and health and flourishing? Well, I, in my experience, the spirit responds. Now, the response will probably be different for you than it is for me. But I'm okay with that. In fact, I I want that. Yeah. I can't do everything. Like, and I know I'm no way claiming that I or anybody I'm associated with is doing it perfectly. No way. Like, we're just trying to be as faithful as we can to respond to what the Spirit is calling us to do in this particular moment right now. And yeah, yeah and I think yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, and I think what what's what's happened here in our time together is <clears throat> you've. Uh, helped us to expand our understanding of what God has called us to be responsible for. And so if we're going to begin to react to some of the things we're constantly hearing about climate change and carbon footprint and carbon taxes, some of those things, we need to be dealing with that through a a grid of what is God really calling us to do instead of just sloughing it off and just you know, that's mainstream media, that, that's the sort of thing, um, to, to take a, a look at, and, and I would like to have a further conversation. I don't know if some of the things mm-hmm. that we're hearing or that we think we're hearing about some of the big solutions is necessarily the way to go, um, but we certainly need to, to go to where we need mm-hmm. to go in order to uh, fully serve God in the way that he's calling us to. And and this this the consumer uh, culture, uh, the convenience culture, um, the the high yield, exploitive culture uh, has mm-hmm. its has serious issues, and mm-hmm. as believers who've been called to steward this planet, we need to take these issues seriously. And if 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 the powers that be or wherever they are, if they're if they're not coming up with the best solutions, then let's come up with better ones. But we need, but we need to come up with those solutions. the 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 status quo is, I don't think, is is the way it should be. No, it's not. So, if people wanted to uh, get to know your organization better and, and want to be in touch mm-hmm. with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, the first and best way is to come and visit. So, there's a few sites where you can come and visit. I realize that's not possible for many, if not most. So our website, arasha.ca, uh, is a good place to get started. Or if you want, if you're curious about the international work, arasha.org would be the other one. So A-R-O-C-H-A dot C-A or dot org. And uh, to get in touch with you, is that possible? Yeah. Yeah. If people want to contact me, um, you can do it through our website. That would be fine. But I think Alan's going to put my email in the in the. Uh, Description. description. Yeah, I could do that. That would be fine too. Rick.fa okay. at arasha.ca. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Rick, for, for having this discussion. We didn't know exactly where it was going to go, but I, yeah. 
you know, we're going to talk when I sign off, but I've been really okay. delighted with, uh, with the territory that we covered. So let's oh, get pruning. I, I'm, I'm glad. I, I hope it serves. I hope it serves you and your, your listeners. Yeah. So again, if you want to know more about Rick and uh, Arasha, the best way to do that is through uh, the two websites, uh, arasha.ca, arasha.org. That'll be in the description as well as Rick's email address. Uh, you can contact him directly. And if you have any questions or suggestions for me, uh, you can contact me through uh, writing comments at thinkingbiblically.org. That's comments at thinkingbiblically.org. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Mm -hmm.